if you think about it, so much of our lives is governed, so much of our lives is governed by our ignorance of the future. So why did I just pay my life insurance premium? Well, it's because though the Lord knows the number of my days, I don't know them. And thus, I don't know when I'll die. I don't want to leave my family in a financial bind if I go before I expected. So I pay that life insurance premium. Right? Why do we diversify our investments? Because we don't know what the market holds tomorrow or next year. And so we spread our assets out among stocks or bonds or commodities, whatever it might be. Delta Airlines reported a quarterly loss this month of $450 million. Right at a time where oil prices are really low, they should be rolling in the dough. But why did they lose $450 million? Well, it's because they, they hedged. They thought oil prices would be going up. And they didn't go up as they thought. And they lost a lot of money. Athletes. Many gifted athletes, they leave their college careers early. They could have stayed maybe for another year or two. They might have had a higher draft pick, but they don't know the risk of injury. It's too great. The lure of a couple mil right now, right, it pulls them away. The market for women freezing their own eggs has grown exponentially in the past decade. And surveys and studies have shown that the primary reason that's the case is because they don't know their future. They don't know if they'll be married. They don't know when they will be in a position, as they understand it, to be in sort of childbearing years. And so they take things and into their own hands that way. My point is just that our ignorance of the future, it has, it has consequences. Consequences for how we live, consequences for how we act, and consequences as well, of course, for how we spend our money. But if you knew the future, if you actually knew what the future held, you would likely act differently, wouldn't you? So if, so if I know that I'm not going to get in a car accident, well, I'm not making that Geico payment. I'm not going to pay it. I, I don't have any need for car insurance if I know I'm not going to get into an accident. If you knew that you only had 30 days to live, you wouldn't be spending 20 of those applying to PhD programs that you're never going to be in. Why does all this matter? Well, it's because Christians, as Christians, so often we live as if we actually know nothing about the future, when in fact we do. We actually do. And thus too often, we live foolishly. And so like Delta Airlines this last month, we're caught surprised, caught rather flat-footed by the future when the Bible's saying, listen, you ought to have been prepared. And it's that that's going to bring us to our parable this morning as we con- continue in this summer series of, of earthly stories with heavenly meaning. So we want to think this morning of a parable that Jesus gives in Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. So if you own a Bible, let me encourage you to turn there. If you didn't, don't have a Bible, didn't bring with you this morning, you can find one in the seat back before you. Luke chapter 16, you can find it on page 875. And if you've come this morning, you don't actually own a Bible, let me just encourage you to take that one there in the seat back before you. Take that with you. Let that be our gift to you. We want you to be reading God's word. So let's begin Luke chapter 16, beginning in verse 1. He, referring to Jesus, also said to his disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager. 
and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him. And he said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. The manager said to himself, What shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do. So that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So, summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, Take your bill, sit down, and quickly write fifty. Then he said to another, How much do you owe? He said, A hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of the world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. All right, friends... If you're left sort of scratching your head at that one, I don't blame you, okay? This is one of the most enigmatic parables that Jesus ever told. There were many points this week where I thought to myself, now I had a choice of which parables I was going to preach, and why did I pick this one again? But it's God's word, Jesus' words to his own disciples. It's going to be profitable to us. We're going to stand, or I'll stand, you'll sit, we'll think about this together. Okay, so what I want us to do is I want us to think about the parable, try to slow down, try to understand why Jesus speaks as he does, because of course it seems like Jesus is actually condoning immoral and unethical behavior. You know, financial fraud, sounds like he's saying, go right for it. It's as if this is a parable straight out of the playbook of that disgraced Enron CEO, Jeffrey Skilling, if you remember that scandal back in the early 2000s. So again, we're going to walk through the parable. I want to answer some of the natural questions that will arise. And then I want us to turn to, I think, Jesus' one and primary point of application. Okay, so let's start with the story. Let's let's begin here. What do we have? Well, we've we've got a manager, and he oversees the estate of a very wealthy man. So he would have managed the books, managed the property, managed the staff, And it appears like he also partook of some of the benefits of managing this estate. So he would have enjoyed access to the boat, to all the toys, and to the cars, the 10-car garage, etc. But it seems he enjoyed those pleasures a bit more than seeking the prosperity of his own estate, of his master's estate. So we read of that complaint in verse 1 about how he's, he's wasting his master's wealth. And that word for wasting, it's actually the same word used in the previous chapter when we went through the prodigal son. And there in Luke chapter 15, verse 13, it's the prodigal son and it's, he's described as one who squandered, same word, wasted, who squandered his property and reckless living. So this word at least wasting, it carries at least this notion of, of carelessness and incompetence, maybe, right, maybe downright abuse. 
And so this manager, he's now summoned into his master's office, right? This is the employee having to walk into the boss's office. And he comes in, and notice he's not called to explain his actions. He's merely to turn in the account of your management, for you cannot any longer be manager. In other words, he's saying, go back to your office, right? Pack your things, hand it all over, the books, the badge, the keys, it's done. Go back, get it settled. You're out. I think that's what's happened here in these opening verses. And so this, this manager, he's going to return to his, his opulent office. He's going to slump in that polish, uh, that posh rather leather chair that he has. And, and his, you know, his head in his hands, this guy's now got to ponder his future. He's just gotten fired He's got no references. He evidently, given the complaints, he evidently has a poor reputation amongst others, amongst his peers, right? His white-collar days of catered lunches and those sort of power dinners, right? Those are long gone. He's seeing that. He envisions himself thus digging ditches, which would have been the most menial of first-century jobs. We're not talking construction work. This, you know, this isn't a hard hat with a backhoe and a decent salary and overtime. That's not what this is. This would have been the most despised job of first century workers, stuff that only slaves would do. And yet this guy, given the way he's been living, he looks down at his sort of protruding belly and he's thinking, I wouldn't last a day out there in the heat, digging ditches. And so he, well, he thinks about begging, but there was an old Jewish expression that he would have known well better to die than to beg. So he's like, I I can't dig, I can't beg, what am I going to do? He doesn't know whether or not to reach for a flask or for a 45 at this point. He's got no options, it looks like. And then, all of the sudden, all of a sudden, verse 4, it's this sort of like, he has an epiphany. You kind of miss that a little bit in the ESV translation, but it's like, oh, I know what to do. I've got an idea. I can't win my boss back, but I might be able to win some others over so that when I'm out on the streets, I can call in a few favors. I have a few people I can turn to. And so he grabs that invoice of his master's debtors. He begins at the top. He pulls his phone. He starts working down that list one by one, calling those folks in, right? They're gathering outside his office. My guess is they're probably a little concerned. You know, this unexpected summons by the manager, probably not good news. Maybe they're calling in the debts early, but he calls them in and he calls the first, the first guy who owns, who rather owes a hundred measures of oil. That hundred measures of oil, that's the equivalent of like three years of a worker's salary. So not a small sum. It's a large sum. And he gives this guy a one-time offer that he can't refuse. He says, sign here and have the debt. Cut it in half. But you got to do it now. You can't walk out the door. One-time offer. You sign it now, right? He gets down quickly. Sign it now. Half your debt is gone. All right. The debtor takes, signs his name out. The next guy comes in. He owns 100 measures of wheat. Writes that down to 80. Who knows how many more times this happened? So what's going to happen when his master finds out what he's done? Is he going to haul him before the SEC for financial fraud? Is he going to sue him for everything he's got? 
Well, no, that's the strangest thing. He doesn't do that. He, it says, he commends him. Verse 8, the master commended the dishonest manager. Right, so how do we make sense of that commendation? Why in the world would he commend him? Well, some have suggested that what happened was the, the actual the manager was bringing their business practices in line with the Mosaic Law. So the Mosaic Law forbid right, usury, sort of lending money at interest, to called usury robbery. And so some suggest, okay, what, what happened here, which apparently wasn't uncommon, was that you would loan money to someone and then you would attach to it not really interest, but sort of a convenience fee. And you'd lump that all into one sum and you'd write that down on the invoice. And so what the manager's doing is he's actually removing those sort of convenience fees, those interest payments, and bringing the master in line with the Mosaic law. And of course, if he does this, what can the master say about it? He can't, he can't speak out publicly about it because of course that would just reveal that he's got shady business practices. So, so that's what some suggest is happening. Others suggest that actually the manager had written his own commission into some of these debts and thus he's reducing that commission. In either case, again, the manager has acted justly in what he's done. And while I think that's a, it's a convenient explanation, it may be right, I'm not so sure. I mean, if you just, when you feel the sort of the movement of the story, it's all done very quickly. And this kind of clandestine, surreptitious manner, like do it quick before you leave, before anyone finds out. And while interest varied depending on different goods, I mean, how he takes some down by half and others by 20%, that's a little harder to understand there is the fact, verse 8, he is called the dishonest manager. You know, he's not called the just manager from bringing the master back into line. He is called the dishonest manager. And lastly, just as you read your own Bibles, just a, a basic principle for Bible interpretation is that if your interpretation rests solely on what isn't in the text, be careful there. All right, be careful there. And I, so I think that it's probably that he actually wrote down the master's debts. And that's most likely what happened. He was acting even here dishonestly toward his own master. But however you want to read it, either way, either way, what's clear is the manager in the midst of a crisis looks to the future, understands he's in a world of hurt. And then what does he do? He seeks to reduce these burdens of debt and thus create goodwill for himself amongst these individuals. And for this, his master, oddly enough, commends him. On what basis, verse 8? On basis that he's been shrewd. That he's been shrewd. Commends him for his shrewdness. He doesn't commend the man for his competence. Doesn't commend him for his character. He commends him for being, in that moment, particularly clever. I was trying to think about, you know, how to, how to give an example, perhaps. And I grew up watching a lot of 80s basketball, not just listening to 80s music, as any of you know, but actually watching a lot of 80s basketball, being in New England at the time, Celtics often playing the Pistons. And there was one player on the Pistons that everyone loathed. It was Bill Lambeer. Bill Lambeer for the Pistons. He collected more rebounds than any other basketball player from 83 to 88. Not because he was the tallest, not because he was the quickest, not because he could jump the highest. Commentators often joked you could measure his vertical by a little popsicle stick underneath. 
You know, he didn't have, in that sense, a lot of skills. But what he lacked in skills, he made up for in just sort of brute, mean, guttural, nasty kind of play. So he'd get under the boards. He would do whatever it took to get the board. He'd pinch, he'd grab, he'd shove, especially when the refs weren't looking. No one liked to play with him, always getting his elbows. No one liked to play with the guy. He intimidated his opponents. And he would always say, hey, listen, I'm not a dirty player. I'm just a guy who's been asked to do dirty work. That was Bill Lambeer, one of the most hated men in basketball, but at the same time respected by everyone. When you had to respect him because he knew how to get the job done, and he did it. Well, I wonder if this manager is, is kind of like that. But he didn't have the intelligence, he didn't have the work ethic. But again, what he lacked in competency, what he lacked in character, he made up for in his own cleverness. And the master, being a businessman himself, evidently given these debts, a very wealthy businessman, he could respect how in that moment of crisis, the man worked the system to his own advantage. Was the manager pleased with the losses? I'm sure he wasn't pleased. Right, but that's actually not what Jesus focuses upon. The purpose of the story is not to suggest that, you know, dishonesty is the best policy. I think it was Mark Twain. We just, we paraphrase Twain and we say, you know, honesty pays. Well, you know, he's not saying, no, Twain was wrong and we listen to Jesus and actually dishonesty pays. That's not the point. Jesus isn't giving an ethics lecture at Harvard Business School. That's not what he's doing. He gives the story because he wants to show how clever worldly people can be when they act in their own best interest. And he speaks of the story because he wants to show his disciples. He's speaking to the disciples. They're not the only ones listening. As we move on into later verses, we see that in chapter 16. But, but he's speaking to his disciples and he wants them to see how clever worldly people can be when they act in their own best interest. And he's going to contrast the shrewd behavior of those who don't know God with those who do. Verse 8, For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. You see, chapter 16 is all about money and possessions. Jesus knows, hey, listen, non-Christians, they know how to make a buck. They may be, at times, a little unscrupulous along the way, but whether it's the Rockefellers or the Skillings or the Zuckerbergs or the Trumps or the Clintons, they know how to turn their system to their, to the system to their advantage. So whether it's multiple bankruptcy courts, we won't talk about which candidate, whether it's multi, you know, FBI investigations, right? Despite it all, somehow they manage to come out ahead. They know the system. They work the system. So the story of the parable goes through the beginning of verse 8. And what Jesus does is he draws an observation from that in the second half of verse 8. And he's saying, listen, like the manager, like the manager in the story, the children of this world, they know how to live cleverly, shrewdly within their systems. But Christians don't seem to know how to live shrewdly within theirs, right? Those of the world seem to give more foresight to their future than we Christians give to our own future. 
That's the observation Jesus makes at the end of verse 8. And then in verse 9, he turns from that observation and he makes a direct application from it. What's that application? He says, verse 9, Make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. All right. We're thinking, Brad, that doesn't help me. I mean, once again, we're presented with another text that sort of throws us. There are a lot of curveballs in the parable. Jesus isn't saying you bribe and buy your way off into heaven. That's not what nine, verse 9 is about. I think the thrust of what Jesus is saying in verse 9 is this. He's saying, with your money, which can so easily lead astray, live in such a way that when this life is over, God will receive you into his eternal dwelling. I think that's the application Jesus is making there in verse 9. With your money, which so often leads astray, live in such a way that when life is over, God will receive you into his eternal dwelling. The parable's drawing a comparison. So in the same way the manager prepared for the end of his employment, so also we are to be preparing for the end of all things. And one of the ways we do that, expressed our trust in God and not in riches, is by being generous with what we own. So just to put it in a single sentence, I think the point of the parable is live shrewdly for tomorrow by being generous today. That's what Jesus is saying. Live shrewdly for tomorrow by being generous today. So many of you will know that British voters last month voted to leave the European Union. It's called Brexit, right? Britain and exit. They voted to leave the EU, and that vote caught many off guard. You know, the prime minister had to resign, and one of the things that happened was their local currency, the British uh, pound, it dropped to 31-year lows. So if you knew, if you knew the outcome of that vote in advance, what would you do? Well, you'd short the pound. You'd sell all your pounds. You would abandon that thing that is about to lose value in order to invest in something else that will gain in value. You see, Jesus is saying that's exactly how we should be looking at this world and the world to come when it comes to our own wealth. There will come a time when everything you own, all the wealth of the world, there will come a time where that will be absolutely worthless to you. Absolutely worthless to you. And that word for wealth there in verse 9, it's mammon. And it refers really just to everything that we can't take with us. So it's called unrighteous, not because there's something wrong with money. Money itself, again, is value neutral. I think he calls it unrighteous because so often we pursue it unrighteously or we use it unrighteously. There's that temptation in the love of money to abuse it. And so he calls it unrighteous. But that's what Jesus calls us to, rather, is is, is to use it not unrighteously, but actually to use it in light of the future, in light of what's to come. Use it well, use it spiritually, use it wisely, be shrewd. But of course, that's not how we often think about wealth. That's not how we think about money. So I was talking to an older family member 
She has many of her friends who are passing away, some unexpectedly, and so she's thinking, I need to spend what I have. I mean, I've only got a short bit of time to enjoy it, so I need to buy that thing, I need to take that trip, I need to, I need to use it while I can still have it. I think that's often how the world and sometimes how we think about wealth and about resources. And that's not necessarily bad, but Jesus is actually saying, actually, you know what? There are better investments, better investments you can be making. He's saying you have the opportunity, as Christians, we have the opportunity today to make investments in sort of heaven-backed securities that will pay eternal dividends. That's what he's presenting. He's saying, listen, think about what you have. Think about how you use it and use it and invest in those sort of heaven-backed securities that you know will repay, will repay eternal dividends. Not just dividends in this life, dividends for eternity. Again, live shrewdly for tomorrow by being generous today. So just a question. I wonder how has the gospel changed the way you think about money, the way you think about stewardship? You know, since becoming a Christian or since in, in growing as a Christian, has that growth and that becoming a Christian, has that caused you to think any differently about money? As you think about how you spend money, if we were to take the register of your checkbook and the register of your non-Christian neighbor's checkbook and go through it, would anything look materially different? You know, when you get a raise, do you ask the question, how much do I spend? I've gotten a raise. How much of this should I spend or do I actually need any of it? Realize those are actually two vastly different questions because one sees money as a tool to be used for others. What do I need? Whereas the other views money as something that we own and use for ourselves. And how can I spend it? But I think thinking of of money in this way, it can be hard. Hard in part because we think of, of money and those things we own as ours. As ours, we worked for it, we saved it, whether it's the money in our account or the car that's paid off in our driveway or the home that we live in or the education we've paid for and maybe are still paying for. Even the children we have, we think of those things, we think, okay, those things are ours, we own them. Thus, we can do with them as we please. And in that, we reveal how the things of this world actually own us. They actually reveal how those things own us. How we become slaves to them and not the other way around. Because the reality is none of these things, not our houses, not our cars, not our bank accounts, our education, our children, we don't actually own any of those things finally. None of those things, none of those things are ours. They are God's. He owns it all. Psalm 24, 1 to 2, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it, for he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. And because he owns everything means he doesn't owe us anything. God told Job, who has a claim against me that I must pay? Everything under heaven belongs to me. Job 41, 11. God owns everything. He owes us nothing. And yet all that he made is good, 1 Timothy 4, 5, for everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. And that includes our wealth. The key to thinking well about money is not to think, 
how can I get all of it? But of course, at the same time, it's not to think, how can I run from all of it? It's to ask the question, okay, how, how can I submit all of it to the Lordship of Christ? That's how we need to be thinking about it. And I love, for example, uh, the example of John Wesley here. So on a, there's a particular day, and a man riding on a horse, deeply distraught, he charges up to John Wesley, and he shouts out to him, Mr. Wesley, something terrible has happened. Your house has burned to the ground. Now, at that news, how would you respond? Well, I'm sure I would quickly think about family, want to ensure they're okay, but then I would also quite quickly move to the catalog of all those things that I had lost. What was in the house? What's the insurance going to cover? How can I get all that stuff back? Well, Wesley weighed the news, and then he calmly replied to the man on the horse, well, no, actually, not my house. No, the Lord's house burned to the ground. And that means one less responsibility for me. Now, you can push that too far, and we can use our house as well in service to the Lord. But his heart, in that response, had so evidently been loosed by, from the love of money. It had been released, it had been loosed from the love of money. Proverbs 30, 89 summarizes Scripture's approach to money well. Give me neither poverty nor wealth. Feed me with the food I need. Otherwise, I might have too much and deny you, saying, Who is the Lord? Or I might have nothing and steal, profaning the name of my God. You see, money can be used for enormous good, even eternal good. And yet Paul, he'll write to Timothy, and he'll say, nonetheless, the love of money, though, the love of it is the root of all kinds of evil. So money can be used in both ways. Our goal is to see it as a tool, to master it as opposed to being mastered by it. For if you know wealth, at all, you know wealth is a terrible anchor for the soul. It's a terrible anchor for the soul. It's never satisfying, right? It's never stable, always shifting about us. Account balances always changing. It's why Proverbs 23, 4 to 5 says, do not wear yourself out to get rich. Have the wisdom to show restraint. Cast but a glance at riches and they are gone for they will surely sprout wings and fly off to the sky like an eagle. You know, John D. Rockefeller was the wealthiest, at least wealthiest American to ever live. So if you were to take his wealth and put it in present dollar uh, terms, he was worth more than three times what Bill Gates, the current richest man in the world, is worth. And so he died. And after he died, someone asked his accountant, said, how much money did John D. leave? How much money did he leave? And his reply was simple. He said he left all of it. All of it, right? You can't take it with you. That was the classic reply that his accountant gave. See, we can't take it with us. We can't take it with us, but we can send it on ahead of us. And that's what Jesus is calling us to do by how we use our wealth. We invest, we do that by investing in things that last in people, in the work of God's kingdom, in those kind of heaven-backed securities that will pay those eternal dividends. It's reflected so well in that quote that many of us know by Jim Elliott. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. 
So what does it look like then to live shrewdly for the next life by being generous in this life? Well, it starts by supporting those things that God would have us to support. You open up your Bibles, you read the New Testament. One of the things that's very clear is we're to support the ministry of our local church. Support its teaching, support its pastors, support its work. That ought to be the first recipient of our stewardship. But while it starts there, it doesn't, it doesn't end there. We don't say, listen, I've, I've written my check, God's got his portion, and now the rest is mine, I can do with it as I please. No, it's, it's all his, it's to be used for him. So we, we look at what we have and we have to ask the question, okay, what do I need and how can I be a blessing to others with whatever else I have? So just ask yourself, how are you with, with the resources God has given you? How are you looking to support the spread of the gospel? Whether or not it's the spread of gospel broad through things like Lottie Moon or, or whether or not directly supporting missionaries here through the church. I mean, have you considered how you might support Bible translation work or how you might support the relief of the widow or the orphan or the unborn? I mean, recognize that all those things I just mentioned, they're actually in our own budget. When you give to this local church, you're actually giving toward all of those causes. I've said before, I like to think of our church budget like a spiritual mutual fund. I want to get the best investments in there, so you want to give every dollar possible to it. I want to encourage you in that. We get to think about some of those things even tonight in our church conference. But, okay, maybe you've done some of that. Maybe you want to look to other things too. Maybe there's a radio broadcast that God's used well in your life and, and, and you want to support that ministry. Maybe it's a meal for someone else. You see a couple and they're struggling with lots of young kids and you think, hey, you know what? Let's get a sitter for them and let's just, let's just give them a meal out. Just get, get some time away. Let's see how we can encourage them, invest in them, how they can use that time spiritually for the purpose of their marriage. Maybe it's a, it's a small gift card. Maybe it's a donation to the Benevolence Fund. We have members in need. You know, one of the things we get to think about in a moment is we celebrate the Lord's Supper is how Christ, who is rich, became poor for us. As we celebrate the Lord's Supper, every month as we do it, maybe that's just a good time to stop and think, hey, do I have anything that I could donate, that I could give money-wise to Benevolence Fund to help others who are in need? Now, there's nothing wrong with having things. So maybe you decide to buy a larger house. Don't cast judgmental glances at those people. They may have bought that larger house because they want to use it for hospitality. They want to have people in it. They want to have people live with them. Maybe you buy a second property because you want to rent it out and you want to rent it out at something under market just so you can be a blessing. Maybe you want to do that downtown so more of us can live down here and try to minister to people in the community. Right, but maybe you feel like you don't have a lot of margin. As it is, you know, you look at your budget and you're like, it's pretty much consumed on needs. There's not a lot of quote-unquote wants, you know, discretionary stuff in there. Well, just think. What, think about what you own, what you have. Do you open your home up for hospitality? You know, maybe your own hospitality budget, your grocery budget, can't, it can't take multiple meals, you know, a month with families of six, like us. Right? But, whatever, but you can. You could do a dessert. You could do a coffee. I'm not saying invite us. But, I mean, the point is... You can do those kinds of things. You don't have to make a full meal. Do you lend freely with what you have? You know, so maybe you have a, a second car or a car you're not using. Are you, willing, are you willing to lend it out to let another use it? Or are you worried about the miles? Or are you worried about the wear and tear on the upholstery? You know, years ago, we moved to D.C. after that season where the kids were all young. 
And as we were packing up our stuff in Louisville to move to D.C., we looked at our, our stuff and we thought, it's just disgusting. Like everything had vomit and spit up. It smelled. It was like, burn it, trash it. We're not moving it. And so we get to D.C. and we have to purchase some furniture. And, and so we pick up some things. You got some rugs and couches and tables, just things we needed. And uh, one of the things I noticed, though, is as we'd have groups over, I was paranoid. Like, what are they going to spill on the, on the rug? You know, what are they going to do to the couch? You know, is there a coaster under the glass? And as I reflected on my own heart, I just found that so often, like many of us, that nagging concern, it just, it revealed how I actually valued my things more than how those things could be of service to others. And that's what that preoccupation reflected how much my heart was tied up in those things and not, again, in how those things are a tool in service to others. Now, friends, I want to be clear. There's nothing wrong with the enjoyment of wealth. 1 Timothy 6, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. And we lose the effect of that a little bit. We insure everything. But, you know, you could lose it. You still can lose it quite quickly. They could lose it like Wesley did his house in an instant. It is so uncertain. But to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. For our enjoyment. God doesn't give us things simply so that we can sort of close our eyes and quickly give them away. He gives us things so that we can glorify him as we enjoy them and as we use them to be a blessing to others. So take the vacation. Take the vacation. Maybe thinking about bringing someone with you. You know, if you've got the sort of emotional capital that can do that thing, that's great. Now, some of you will say, hey, I'm an introvert. I can't take someone else with me on vacation. I get it. But whatever you do, consider doing something like that. You know, have a nice meal. Maybe bless others with a nice meal. There's nothing wrong with enjoying what God has given as long as it's enjoyed for him and we're seeking to bless others as we enjoy him. And we do all this, why do we do it? Because as Christians, we know this is how we've been loved in Christ. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. All that Christ had. Right? His, his possessions, his reputation, his very life, all of that poured out for us. You know, if you've come here this morning and, and you're not a Christian, I don't want you to misunderstand Jesus on verse 9. He's not teaching that heaven is achieved through kindness and philanthropy. That's not Jesus' point. Spiritually speaking, the Bible is very clear. Jesus is very clear. We're all spiritually bankrupt, right? We're up in debt spiritually to our eyeballs and there is no way we will ever be able to pay it off. And there's no amount of money in the world that you could combine and that you could pay off the debt that we owe God in our sin. But the glory of the gospel is that that debt that we cannot pay is the very debt that Christ paid for us. When he lived that perfect life, when he sacrificed and gave of himself on the cross, he exchanged his perfect righteousness and took upon himself all the debts of our own sin. So that any who would turn from their sin, 
that would trust in Him, that would believe upon Him in repentance and newness of life, they can be forgiven. They can know what it means to be truly debt-free. They can be freed from the bondage of their sin and from those chains, and they can know forgiveness. They can know joy and everlasting life. That's the hope of the gospel. If you've come and you don't know that hope, I pray that you talk to the person that invited you. Come talk to one of us at the doors or down here afterward. We'd love to speak with you about what that means, about the good news of the gospel. But for the Christian, one of the consequences of that gospel is that, as Jesus is teaching, we need to be marked by generosity, as he has been so generous with us. It was Andrew Carnegie, one of the world's wealthiest men to ever live, sort of the classic rags-to-riches story, and he said, a man who dies rich dies disgraced. He wasn't a Christian. But even he recognized, a man who dies rich, barns very full, right, dies disgraced. We want to prepare ourselves for tomorrow by living those kind of generous lives today so that when we stand before our Lord, we're going to be accompanied by all of those joyful cheers and the shouts of those who were blessed by our generosity. You know, the Iraqi that we never met, but was saved through the support, even if it was only $5 a month or through the work of the church, that Iraqi we never met, but was still saved through the support of Bible translation. Or the child we don't know, but the child that was born once and then born twice through the ministry of a crisis pregnancy center. The addicts who were helped by a recovery ministry. The poor who received assistance in a time of need. The missionary on the field who was emboldened by our support and by frequent visits. The thankful hearts of those we blessed with free books and then continued in deep spiritual conversation. The faces of all those invited, that we've invited into our homes. Jesus is saying, are you making those kinds of investments? Those investments that pay eternal dividends and spiritual investments in his kingdom such that when you get there, you'll receive that welcome reception. You know, how? How are you being generous today so that you will be joyfully received into his kingdom tomorrow? How are you being generous today so that you will be joyfully received into his kingdom tomorrow? Let's pray. God, we pray and we, we're thankful for the parables. They often, they often strike right at our own hearts, whether it's self-righteousness, whether it's greed. God, we recognize that there's a call to action in the parable. There's a call to live differently. And God, we pray that you would help us. Help us to use those things we possess and to use them well and to recognize that where we have failed, we can turn to him who has been the perfect steward and who is the most gracious master and know that we have forgiveness. In Jesus' name, amen.